This morning I'll be reading the scripture. It's Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. Please pray with me as we begin. Father, we pray this morning as your son Jesus taught us to pray. Hallowed be your name. We pray that your kingdom would come this morning, Lord, and that your will would be done on earth in this place right now as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. We are your needy children, and we look to you as our provider. Forgive us, Lord. We ask for your gracious forgiveness for our sins. And in light of the abundance of your forgiveness, we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Please lead us not into temptation today, Jesus but deliver us from evil and the evil one. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My friends, this is an incredible album. And I already got the boomers in on this message. Okay, 1970, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Deja Vu. I mean, bangers. Every single one of these songs is like, is incredible. Carry On, Teach Your Children with Jerry Garcia on steel guitar, come on. <laughs> Helpless, and my fave like almost cut my hair for obvious reasons. Now just as an aside, guys, I used to have hair like down to the middle of my back. And people are always asking me about my beard. All the beard is, guys, is a personal act of rebellion against male pattern baldness. That's what's going on here. Okay? I'm getting off track. Now, I bet more of you know this album than you think you do. So let's test this. I'm going to say a line, and you answer back to me. Okay? Our house is a... With two cats in the yard, life. 
Now everything is easy because of you. La, 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 la. See? I knew it. You're all a bunch of hippies. I knew I found my people. Now, here's what I've learned about music. I really love music. But here's what I've learned. If you really want to appreciate the present, you have to know of the past. So some of you kids are thinking, like, the music that these guys are into are totally lame. But what you need to realize is that the music that you like, it came from somewhere. And any good musician knows that they stand on the shoulders of others. Right? Any female or male musician knows they, they turn to the past to get inspired and to learn about the creativity and what's come before them so that they can have impact and influence in their generation. That's true for every good musician. Cosmic country, I don't know if you're familiar with this genre, but some of my friends are really into cosmic country. And in cosmic country right now, they're crushing it with a steel guitar. Jerry Garcia was doing steel guitar 50 years ago. That's not new. <laughs> to appreciate and to be relevant in the present, you've got to know the past. You've got to know where this stuff comes from. And that's true for more than just music. Marriage has been and continues to be a real hot topic in our culture. What is marriage? Who can get married? Who determines who can get married? Who should get married? What is love? What constitutes love? Who defines love? Now, the way that we answer those questions depends on where we're getting our information from, right? What voices we're listening to? What is inspiring us? What we're being influenced by? I'll light the fire. You place the flowers in the vase that you bought today. Great song. I mean, it really is. Cozy home, like this real warm relationship. But guys, we got to go back further than Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. We got to go all the way back. And that's what we just read in Genesis 2. This is the first marriage. Now, in the same way that musicians look back to find inspiration from the past, that's what I want us to do this morning. In order to be culturally relevant, we've got to look to the past and be inspired by what God has said about the topic of marriage. And I think what he's after here is a clear-headed thinking, a clear-headed understanding of what he has determined marriage to be so that we can enjoy it and celebrate it. And to be culturally relevant with it. Enjoying this good gift that God has given to us. Now, I'm going to give you my structure, but a brief word for our singles. If you are here this morning and you're a single, if you're divorced, if you're widowed, I've really been praying for you this week. And I can only imagine that a sermon on marriage has unique temptations or tensions for you. So I want to say things, two things very clearly before we get into the text this morning. First, we see you. 
This church sees you. And more importantly, God sees you. This is not just a church for married people, and our goal is not to just rush you to the altar. Some of you are really enjoying your singleness, and that's great. Some of you are really wanting to be married, and waiting is really hard. We see you. And this church wants to be one of the means of grace that God communicates to you that you may be single, but you're not alone. You may be single, but you're not alone. To the married men and women that are befriending singles and relating with them and carrying them and having them over to the families who are welcoming singles, can I just say, you guys are doing a great job. Like That's, that's what we should be as a church. So keep on doing that. If you're a married couple and you don't know any singles, can I encourage and challenge you? Find some. Have them over. Don't just hang out with married people. Okay, so singles, we see you. Secondly, we value you. We value you just as you are. Marriage is great, but it's not the ultimate existence. And you're not somehow less than because you're not married. And you're not valued just because you can offer us babysitting for date nights. (laughs) Your identity is not in your singleness. Your identity is in Christ. And we don't need to look any farther than Jesus Christ to see the value in being a single human being. Jesus was the human being. He was the perfect human being. He was completely satisfied and totally fruitful. And he did all of that as a single man. Jesus, Paul, and many, many godly men and women have lived lives for great success and glory to God. And so we value you just as you are. We see you and we value you. Okay, I want to offer you my structure now. When we go back, all the way back to the beginning, what do we observe about this first marriage? What do we see here? Well, very basically, we see that it involves God's initiative and man's response. So another two-point sermon this morning. God's initiative, man's response. We see God's initiative in marriage, and we see man's response to marriage. So first, God's initiative. Marriage is God's initiative. You see that so clearly. In, In verses 18 through 22, God is the one making the first move in marriage. I read at least nine verbs in just those verses alone. God said, I will make. God formed. He brought. He caused. He took. He closed. He made. He brought. Nine verbs. Like God's doing a lot of activity here. He's taking action. He's initiating. Marriage is God's idea. And we notice if we're reading very carefully that something is out of the ordinary. In chapter 1, God said after he made all that he made, it's good, it's good, it's good. And when he made everything, he said, it's very good. Now, something's not good. That's supposed to jump off the page at us. What's not good? Man's aloneness. The Bible teaches us that God exists and has always existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. 
So eternally, God has joy, enjoyed life in community. So part of being made in the image of God is that we, men and women, are built for relationship. Right? People, men and women who are made in God's image, it's not fitting. There's something not right about us being alone because by our very nature, we're created to have relationships, meaningful, deep, enjoyable relationships. So it's not good. It's not fitting that man should be alone. Now, check out how God brings this about. What's going on with the animals here? What's up with that? God brings all the animals to Adam, and we learned a couple weeks ago that like, this was no small task, right? Like Adam's not just like shooting from the hip here. To name the animals, he really had to get down and get dirty and observe them, and what makes, them, what makes a pelican a pelican? What makes a giraffe a giraffe? Like he really had to observe, he had to have like strong, keen observational awareness and knowledge of what the animal was in order to give it its name. This is a long process. And it begins to dawn on him, wait a second here, as I'm viewing and studying and taking painstaking effort to identify all these birds and beasts and every species, I realize they've got a male and they've got a female. And as I'm looking around, there's no one like that for me. Do you see what God's doing? He's creating an awareness in Adam. He could have just taken the dust of the earth like he did. He could have spoke. We know what God can do. He didn't do it that way. He's creating awareness in Adam. He's creating longing in Adam. He's creating desire. He's creating the capacity for appreciation. I don't see anyone, awareness. Man, I really, really want one, desire. I know God can give this to me. He's good and powerful, appreciation. There she is. Yes, God, thank you. Do you see how that works? That's what God's doing here. God's doing this. This is God's initiative. And when was Eve created? God was the first anesthesiologist. Adam is knocked out cold. He's doing nothing. This is not man's doing. This is God's initiative. Now, we need to be careful here, right, as we start to think about, okay, what does this mean for me? Like, on one hand, marriage is God... Bringing spouses together. That's God's initiative, okay? And what we see Adam doing here is he's busy doing the work that God gave him to do. So he's not blowing off work, feeling self-pitiful, and just complaining about his loneliness. He's like getting after it. He's doing what God called him to do. Waiting was not equal, equal with stagnating, okay? He's waiting for a wife, but he's not stagnating. And the best thing that we can do if we want to be married is get to work on being the men and women that would actually make us good spouses. And that just doesn't mean to be like super spiritual. Like you have to give attention to your body and to your mind and to your spirit. So here's an easy win, mainly for you younger guys. When I first met Vicki, I thought my style was just fine. She thought otherwise. So I started getting all these packages in the mail, like new shirts, new jeans, new outfits. And I'm like, dang, dude, this girl's like really into me. She's really generous. She's really kind. And she is all those things. But she saw me as a man in desperation. That was what was going on there. 
So yes, 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 we have to trust God to bring us our spouse, but get busy on some things too. Right? Read and know your Bibles, but like take a shower, guys. Every once in a while, buy yourself some new clothes. Like don't, don't just neglect yourself because God is going to bring her your way. And that's not just true for singles. I remember my father-in-law saying to me, hey, Jason, make sure you don't stop running once you catch the bus. Don't stop running once you catch the bus. You know, the chase, the excitement, the development of a new relationship, all that's great. It's exciting. And we're all trying to be like the best versions of ourselves in those moments. But that doesn't mean we just apathetically let ourselves go once we say, I do. Right? We're supposed to keep pursuing growth, keep looking for ways to love and serve one another, keep taking care of ourselves. Don't stop running, married couples, just because you caught the bus. Marriage is God's initiative. Marriage is God's initiative. Which means that God's the one that defines what constitutes a marriage. It's his initiative. And we see that marriage is one man married to one woman. That's what God defines as marriage. One man, one woman. And we see this most clearly in verse 24. Moses, who's writing the word of God, says that a man shall leave his parents and hold fast to his wife. One man, one woman. Now, Jesus and Paul in the New Testament, they go right back to the same verse to develop their teachings on marriage. Marriage is to be permanent, Jesus says. Paul says that marriage has a much higher purpose than just being a human relationship. Man and women are created intentionally to be relationally, biologically, psychologically, and all these other ways. They're they're created in such a way to come back in a very complementary way, like they fit together. That's intentional. God initiated that. They fit together in life-giving, joy-producing, satisfying ways. And from the very beginning, Yahweh was communicating this is to be a picture. And ultimately a picture of Christ's union and togetherness with the bride that he loves, his church. This was God's initiative. Amen. So, all this is to say is we we shouldn't go messing around with this. We can't go messing around with marriage. This is it. And we shouldn't be embarrassed or shy or sheepish about holding to a biblical view of marriage. God's ways are good. God's ways are true. God's ways are right. And I'm thinking of you, you, you kids, you teens, man. Like, you get bombarded. Like, this is not because people are trying to shut things down. God created this to be like families and communities and cultures flourish when we do things God's way. That's the way he set the world up. So we don't have to be, like, shy or embarrassed or think we're, like, bigots for preaching a good and high view of marriage. This is God's initiative. This is God's idea. We should be proudly, humbly, but proud of what God has given to us as a gift, right? 
Now, secondly, although we should not be embarrassed or shy about it, we can't only be concerned. We can't only, only be concerned with articulating and defining a biblical view of marriage. We can't just define it, but never actually get around to doing it, is what I'm saying. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. You know that. You've heard countless sermons about marriage being this great picture of Jesus and his bride, the church. You know that. But oftentimes, your Christian marriage and mine is far from compelling We can sometimes think that we're doing this big, noble work and patting ourselves on the back because we're defining clearly a biblical view of marriage. But behind closed doors, guys, we are not loving our spouses the way that God clearly tells us to. So we can't go patting ourselves, defining biblical marriage, arguing for biblical marriage. That's the easy part. That's really simple to do. One man, one woman. It's right here. Go live that way. That's hard. And let's just acknowledge the fact that the world smells hypocrisy a mile away. When our marriages are not preaching the goodness of God, but we're out there judging other people for their marriages that are all wrong, they smell that a mile away. And so do our kids. Hypocrisy has never won anyone to Christ but it has driven a lot of people away from him. We should know what our Bibles say about God's view of marriage. We should. But we should also, I think, learn to hold that view today with some empathy. This is what I mean by that. Picture this. A husband and wife, they really love their daughter. They cherish the years that they've grown up with her and raised her. They have a really good and healthy relationship. Yeah, ups and downs, just like every family does. But by and large, healthy relationship. They love her. They enjoy spending time with her. She grows up as an adult and marries her girlfriend. What are the parents supposed to do? They disagree with their daughter's choice, but they're conflicted. They really love her. Not just because they're supposed to, like, for real, for real. They want to continue being in her life. Now, it gets more complicated. The daughter carries and then gives birth to this beautiful, joyful, happy baby girl. Now they're grandparents. And what do grandparents want to do? They want to love on their grandkids. They want to take them to McDonald's and take them for ice cream and buy them a whole bunch of stuff that they don't need. They want to be grandparents. But they're conflicted. How do we hold to our conviction on marriage, yet apply it in such a way, very practically and sensitively, that we can maintain these relationships that we desperately want to have because we love these people? Put yourself in those shoes for a minute. Should we attend a family member or friend's same-sex wedding? Guys, I'm telling you, this is not a matter of if for most of us. This is when you're going to be invited to same-sex weddings. What are you going to do? 
Family members, friends, coworkers, people you actually love and like are going to say, I would love for you to attend my wedding, but you don't agree with their view on marriage. What are we supposed to do? How do we hold to a biblical view of marriage and work and live and love people who are very different and think very differently from us? How do we do that? And how do we parent through this? One of our sons, when he was like in first grade, I think, maybe second grade, he, he like was really getting along with this other guy in his class, other kid in his class. So like he wanted to hang out with him. Of course, let's have him over. Well, at that age, like you had the whole family over. The whole family was two dads. It was a gay, gay couple. So we're like, all right, well, we already extended the invitation. Like, we're having them over. Because, yes, of course, I have to model for my son what biblical marriage is, but don't I also have to model for him how to love people who don't hold to the same things that we hold to? We've got to do both. And it's weird and it's awkward. That was an awkward dinner party. We tried to treat him with respect. We, we just tried to just be human beings. And it's messy and we make mistakes, okay? So just this summer, I'm having a conversation with a woman who's married to another woman. And we're just chatting, getting to know each other. We're on vacation and we're talking about a bunch of different things. But then it, the conversation kind of uh, eventually goes into like traveling and vacations and stuff and like honeymoons, Okay, so we're talking about our honeymoons, and there was a moment where, like, she was talking about their honeymoon, and I was referring to mine, and as the words were coming out of my mouth, internally I was like, oh, I wouldn't say it exactly that way, that's not what I meant, because I was saying, oh yeah, just like you guys went on your honeymoon, I went on my honeymoon, and I was equating marriage, but internally I'm thinking, I don't, I don't agree with that, that's not what I believe, like, I don't think that that's God's design for marriage, and as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, ah, like, it's messy. See, most of us are totally content to define biblical marriage, but let's just be honest. We do not want to get our hands dirty into the work of actually living and loving people who are different on, a, on this topic than us. It's true. Just admit it. I, I want love defining biblical view of marriage with people that think exactly like me. Now go out and try to live that way with people who totally disagree with everything I'm saying. It's messy. So let's not compromise on what God clearly states marriage to be, but let's certainly not go and judge other people for having all their marriage wrong when behind closed doors our marriages are a mess. Let's not do that. And let's have some sympathy and empathy for one another as we're trying to work all this stuff out, guys. We need each other in this. I need to find out if you pray about and really seek God and seek his word and counsel you seek wise counsel, and you decide in good conscience, I cannot go to this wedding. I can't. I, my conscience won't let me. Good for you. If for different reasons and circumstances, somebody else does the same exact thing, they pray, they study God's word, they seek counsel, and they decide to go, one is not better than the other. You might choose not to go for good conscience. The other person might choose to go for a different set of reasons. The one is not a legalist, and the other one has not abandoned the faith. We need to have a mature conversation and be able to say, now how did you come to that conclusion? 
Why did you do what you did? This is what I did. I want to learn from you. I want to understand these things. We need to work this out. But that conversation is not going to happen if I just look at you and judge you because you did something that I would never do. We need each other right now, guys. We need each other. We need to help each other think through these things. We don't need to be sectioning off and dividing over things that are very important for us to learn. How do we actually, in the nitty-gritty stuff of life, how do we do this stuff? Because I'll just say for me, this is not easy. It's messy. One final thing I'll say. We're talking about marriage as God's initiative. Marriage is God's initiative. Thanks, Jim. And I want to say this specifically to marriages who are struggling right now. I want you to hear this. No one, no one, no one is more eager to help you in your marriage than God. Marriage is God's initiative. This is his design. No one's more eager to help you in your marriage than God is. All of us, whether it's in marriage or in some other way, all of us fall short. We all sin. This is a messy, messy world. But what does God do in the midst of that? Just read Genesis. Like things are going to go south right away. And what does God do? He initiates. He initiates. He initiates. That's the whole story of the Bible. And what does God do in your life when you sin and you fail and you mess up marriage or singleness or whatever? He initiates. That's what the gospel teaches us. God is not a God who is aloof, unconcerned, angry at you, and so he's distancing himself. God is one that comes to you and becomes just like you and lives the life you couldn't live, dies the death you deserve to die, rises again and says, I have come that I might bring you back into this relationship with myself. Will you trust me? God initiates all of that. So if you are struggling right now in marriage or in some other area, let me just say this. God welcomes you this morning. He welcomes you in Jesus Christ. Whether you're married, single, divorced, widowed, sinners of all kinds, God welcomes you this morning. He knows the worst about you. He sees it, and he's taking initiative toward you. Even right now in this sermon, he's saying, no, come to me. I'm aware of that, and I want you to come to me. He welcomes you in Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's gracious initiative and what God what God's grace always expects of us if we can say that what God's grace elicits from us is a response and that's what brings me to this next point okay God's marriage is God's initiative marriage also involves a response okay what is Adam's response we see it in verse 23 these are the first human words of the Bible they're words of poetry, of celebration, of, of, of worship, of deep gratitude. At last, Adam's longing for another is, is fulfilled. He's celebrating here. Eve is not less than me. She's not different. She's not a different kind than me. She's one with me. She's from my very self. At last, thank you, God. This is great. Adam's skills have been very finely honed by naming all the animals. So now he names the woman. And the very sentiment that I just said is embedded in the naming. Isha, 
woman, the Hebrew, Isha. She's from Ish, man. Isha from Ish. This is one with me. We're unique. We're unique. We're not the same exact. Isha is not Ish. Ish is not Isha. We're unique, but we're alike. We together image forth God, but in form and function, we are different. And God made the woman to be a suitable helper for the man. Now, I, all the bristles go up. Okay, we're gonna, I'm gonna, next week I'll preach a whole sermon on this. But for right now, this, the idea of woman as a helper is not derogatory in any way. Over and over and over again, the Bible talks about God as the helper. Psalm 121, very familiar. I, I lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. God, over and over and over again, is called a helper in the Bible. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come and be the helper. Does that mean somehow that God is subservient to his people? Of course not. Claire, um, what's her name? Smith, I think. She's an author. She writes on this. She does a great job. Claire Smith. The point here, she says, is that those needing help can't do it on their own. Those who need help can't do it on their own. It's true when God helps us, we need him. And it's true of Adam. He needs help from the woman. Okay, that's, that's the point here. And Adam's response is one of worship and gratitude and celebration. And let's be honest, some of us have long forgotten what it was like for God to bring us a spouse. We've long forgotten this. We've become numb to this. We're apathetic. We're critical. We try to pressure one another into fulfilling these expectations that we have for one another. And if we don't get them, we just get unhappy and apathetically go looking elsewhere for pleasure. Guys, we show with our marriages sometimes that we've gotten so far off track from God's good design. Our spouses are blessings to us. They're a gift from God. And I think God would have us to respond accordingly. I've had to do a lot of repenting this week. I've had to go to Vicki and say, I have taken you for granted. I do it all the time. And I've forgotten what, what, all of the goodness of God that has come to me over these 20 years and the unique things we've experienced because we've been married. Like, God has been so incredibly kind, and I'm apathetic to it. It's wrong. I had to do some repenting this week. I had to ask God to give me a fresh appreciation for my wife. Maybe you can join me. Another response that we see here is that man is to leave and hold fast, literally stick to his wife. And the response, I think, that is emerging here is that we're to recognize that the marriage relationship is now Adam and Eve's first relational priority. The marriage relationship is Adam and Eve's first relational priority on a human level. Okay, that means that as husbands and wives, we can't prioritize our children, our parents, our friends, our siblings above our spouses. This is, my wife is my first relational priority on this earth in a human sense. But it also means that as parents and siblings and friends, we can't insert ourselves unduly putting pressure on marriages. It goes both ways. 
Now, my guess is that there's been more than one conflict out there on this issue. Like Each of us as couples need to figure this out. Each of us as families need to figure this out. But here's the principle. If there are relational ties that are competing with the relationship between a husband and a wife, the marriage takes first priority. Now, what about abuse? What about seasons of neglect? What about uh, aging and dying parents? Listen, we need to use wisdom and we need to let love guide us in this. I'm speaking in very broad strokes this morning. I'm not talking about all the nitty-gritty situations that we all find ourselves in. Leaving and holding fast does not, does not mean that we hide behind our marriage or isolate ourselves in our marriage to neglect our parents or friends who are trying to help us. Honor your father and mother does not give us parents the right to go meddling in our kids' marriages. Right? God's truth is not meant to be wielded as swords to win an argument. Love and wisdom. They, love helps us to be meaningfully involved in healthy relationships with family. And love also helps us set appropriate and wise boundaries. Love and wisdom do both. And each couple, each family, each friend group, we all need to figure this out. And while we're on the topic of conflict... Eve and Adam, they responded to the gift of marriage perfectly. But we're not in Eden anymore, right, guys? Like those really cute, quirky things that our spouse did at first, like that we were all giggly over, they become tolerable. And then they drive you absolutely nuts. Right? I'm not alone in that. I know I'm not. The church has a very high view on marriage, and we should. We should. Marriage is glorious. Marriage represents Christ in the church. We better have a high view on marriage. But I think that in the church, we also place a lot of stress and have a lot of unrealistic expectations about marriage. There can be a lot of pressure that we feel in our marriages. Marriage is glorious, but it's also really gritty. If you want to have a good marriage, it's going to take some hard work. It's going to take intentionality. And I love hearing from couples, especially in the church, I just love my spouse. And I don't mean, I'm, I'm not mocking anybody here. Okay? I love my spouse. We're best friends. We just have to sit in a room together. That's awesome. Praise God. But I think it's just as godly to say, you know what, we've really struggled over the years. And we've had a lot of ups and downs. Our marriage has been hard, but we've learned how to cultivate respect and love and appreciation for one another. We weren't just automatically best friends. We had to put some work in for that. I think that's just as godly. Praise God for both. I want to have a high view of marriage, but I also want to be real in my marriage too. And I've consulted or counseled with more than one couple that's been disillusioned because they expected their Christian marriage, even though they would never say this, you expected your Christian marriage to somehow be this fairy tale, and it's just not. Good and healthy marriages take a lot of hard work. And sometimes that work is very ordinary. 
So early on in our marriage, Vicky tried to teach me this card game called cribbage. It's a big New England card game. It's very old. And when she tried to teach me, I thought it was totally lame. Like, I hated it. There's lots of counting, lots of strategy, and Vicky's like super competitive. And I'm like, this is dumb. Like, I'm, I'm, we're done here. And so over the years, she's tried to get me to play this game, and to my shame, my response has been the same. Like, this is stupid. I'm not doing this. I'm not playing this game. I don't like this game. Now, for a variety of reasons, the past few years for Vicky and I, they've been challenging. Like, there's, there's been a lot of stress in our marriage. And so we're looking for some easy wins, okay? So this summer, I decide to give Cribbage another chance. I know Vicky likes it, and I've come to the conclusion, I know I'm a bright guy 20 years in, that if I'm going to do anything good, if we're going to get the wheels turning again, I can't stubbornly, like, hold my ground on a stupid card game. Like, i got to do some changing if our marriage is going to get an easy win. You would think I would have gotten that by now. <laughs> so we start playing the game. We're learning it. So as soon as I express interest, what does Vicky do? She runs out like the next day and buys this beautiful cribbage board. I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> How much did that cost? <laughs> now, she's just as competitive, okay? She's real good at math, which means I'm over here, like, counting on my fingers, literally, four, five, but she's just looking at my cards and mentally she's got the math done, like instinctively. So there's this thing called mugging. So if I miscount but she counts correctly, she steals my points. Well, this week we took our little cribbage board and we went to the stables and I don't know if it was, you know, she had a drink, one drink, she had a beer. Maybe it was the beer. Maybe it was the loud music. But I got a muggins. I stole the point from her, and she's so competitive, and I'm, I'm just like, who cares? I'm having fun. I'm having a beer. We're watching the music, but she's like, oh, and I'm like, oh, all right. I'm all in on cribbage now. Here's my point, guys. We're trying to work on our marriage. We're trying to just work on the marriage. It's not... It's not real sexy and fancy. We're, we're playing a card game together. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is just go do something fun together. Get the wheels turning again. Our relationships are, and our marriages, they, they have a lot of different aspects to them, right? You've got to spend time together. You've got to communicate. You've got to talk openly about sex and intimacy. You've got to have business meetings. Vicky's favorite. Nothing sexier than a spreadsheet. Okay? But you've got to talk about finances. You've got to do that stuff. You gotta have fun together, you gotta pray together, you gotta have fellowship. There's all these aspects, and it can be exhausting because all of those aspects take a lot of work. And at the end of the day, I just wanna watch Netflix. I don't wanna do the work, right? But if our marriages are going to work, we gotta put the work in. So, Vicki and I, our response right now is like, we're just trying to take some steps, man. We're just trying to get some wins here. God, we're trying to respond. This is a good gift. We often take it for granted. We've got stuck in some bad habits. We're trying to respond just to get the wheels turning here. Maybe some of you wives and husbands need to join us. Our marriages are a gift, guys. They really are. Now, some of you might be looking for some help. Isaac and Sarah are starting their next Grace Marriage Group in October. Okay? Let me just say very clearly, grace marriage is not the silver bullet, okay? It's not going to fix everyone's marriage. 
but it could just be that thing that helps you to get the wheels turning again, to get some easy wins again. Okay, so I invite you to check that out. More, more to come on that next week. All right, wrapping it up. Okay, God, oh my goodness. There are so many more things that we can say about marriage. But let's not overlook the simple. Let's not neglect the simple for the complex. Marriage is God's initiative, and we should respond with gratitude. We should respond with a willingness to put the work in. We should understand God's design for marriage. We should enjoy God's good gift of marriage. And the first marriage, it was beautiful. Harmony, unity, joy. Nothing to hide. They're, they're naked. They're unashamed. Nothing to, nothing to be uh, afraid of. Totally open. Nothing to cover up. This age of innocence, guys, it is so foreign to us. But remember that the Bible shows that God never stops taking initiative. God would provide covering from Adam and Eve. And he's still providing that covering for us today. When we repent of our sins, when we trust in Christ, God promises to clothe us with his own righteousness. Jesus wears our sinfulness on the cross. And through faith and repentance in him, we get to wear his sinlessness. He wears our sinfulness, we wear his sinlessness. And it's all a response to God's free gift of salvation and grace, forgiving us in Jesus Christ. So whether we're married or not this morning, this is the way that we live without shame, without guilt, nothing to hide, nothing to cover up before God. We come to God through Jesus who clothes us with his own righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would allow your word to find fertile soil in our hearts. I pray that we wouldn't be distracted as we leave and forget what we've heard. I pray that we wouldn't be swallowed up by the cares of this world. I pray that you would guard us from satanic deception. I pray that the word this morning would find a fertile heart soil in all of us. That you would produce fruit in time that would be great and beautiful to see. And I pray all of that would glorify you and that you would make us to be the people that you've already called us to be in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.